as both a mother and a scientist, I, I already have to straddle two, um, two different worlds. And it's really complicated sometimes to make sure that I'm taken seriously as a scientist um, and, and not just, quote unquote, um, a mother who's on, on fire for her child, which is a real quote that I have received. Hey there, I'm Luca Fuser Bassini. I'm a PhD student in computational biology at TPFL in Switzerland, and you're listening to a biotech futurist. The biotech futurist aims to foster deep understanding and discussion about exciting hot topics in biotech. But I want to say from the beginning that it is by no means rigorous in teaching the subject. And for the sake of outreach, sometimes we need generalizations that, of course, simplify the reality of the science behind what we're discussing. But I can say that my guests and I do our best to be clear and to go in depth. You can imagine to be out with me and my expert guest for a friendly conversation to get a general understanding and more curiosity, having fun as much as I've had recording this podcast. This podcast has no sponsors and any reference is not meant to support any commercial activity. This podcast is a solo effort, so if you wish to support me, I'd be grateful if you followed the Biotech Futurist on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform and share it with your friends. With that said, I am excited to move on to today's conversation at the Biotech Futurist. Hey everyone, today I have a great pleasure to host Christina Johnson. Christy defines herself as a physicist turned cognitive neuroscientist with a passion for improving lives, especially for individuals with special needs. Christy, thanks for being here. First things first, can you tell us the very personal story that led you to the rare disease field? Thanks, Luca, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, yeah, my journey started as a physicist. I thought that I was going to be an astrophysicist specifically. I did astronomy and plasma research when I was an undergrad, and I went straight into a PhD program in physics where I studied uh, fluid dynamics of a very special type of fluid called superfluid helium. It's really, really cold. When you when you get liquid helium down to colder than deep space, it exhibits these quantum and classical mechanics at the exact same time. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating. Um, and I took what I thought would be a short break um, to move across the country to where my husband was also doing his PhD in physics. And it turned into a indefinite break when our son was born with a rare genetic disorder. And um, his genetic disorder is called MEF2C haploinsufficiency syndrome. Um, MEF2C is the name of the gene. And it's a global developmental um, gene. It affects many different properties. And at that point, I knew that I was going to be home with him, that I just sort of poured all of my uh, time and effort and energy into what was necessary to make his life as good as possible. And so that was reading scientific literature on autism and neuroscience and genetics. Um, I also became a scientific editor when he was asleep, just so that we could have a tiny fraction of money to help pay the bills, because um, we were still, at that point, one, three, three people living on a single graduate student salary uh, in Southern California, which was tough. Um, but yeah, then uh, we moved to Boston for my husband's postdoc, and it really wasn't until our son started at a special school and I had a minute um, to myself to really think that maybe I would explore uh, 
an academic career in a way that could really not only help him, but help kids like him. And what I had seen was that there were just a lot of problems to be solved. Um, I love science. I love the intellectual thrill of discovery and exploring new ideas and testing them. And um, the next question was, how do I, how do I do that? in a career? How do I do that in a field? Um, so I was really lucky to find the MIT Media Lab, which allows for misfits like me who say, I don't, I don't want to do physics anymore, even though that's what's on my resume and astronomy and these other things. Um, I actually want to study autism and genetic disorders and uh, neuroscience, even though I don't have the background in that. And um, they were you know, I was very lucky um, to get a position there and have that incredible multidisciplinary um, environment to grow and to have the freedom to really explore uh, any idea that I had. And um, it says, so I think I think you got this uh, physicist turned cognitive neuroscience from a website. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> That's so spotting. Um, and I, I wrote that in 2014 when I was um, applying to graduate schools, and it hasn't been updated since. Um, and that's back when I thought that cognitive neuroscience would be the answer. I thought that I could find the, the answers to the questions that I was looking into in cognitive neuroscience. And really, I think it takes more than one discipline. Um, so now I say I live at the intersection of neuroscience, engineering, yeah, and <laughs> yeah, exactly, and neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, and specifically, I, I explore um, language development from monogenic disorders. Um, yeah, that's super inspiring. And yeah, just before we started recording this podcast, uh, I was talking to Christy about what she's doing now. So maybe we can take a step further into her present and then go back to her past and all she's been doing because it's so incredible in many different disciplines, as she was just saying. So Christy, can you tell us something about what you're doing now and uh, in general, what population genetics can uh, do for rare diseases? Yeah, so I'm part of the um, RDCRN, which is the, uh, hold on, Rare Disease Clinical Research Network. Rare Disease Clinical Research Network, um, and part of the Developmental Synaptopathies Consortiums there that is looking at three different um, monogenic disorders, uh, tuber sclerosis complex, uh, P10 hematoma tumor syndrome, and Phelan McDermott syndrome, which is the uh, name for a disorder that's associated with um, the Shank 3 gene. And all three of these genetic disorders are uh, much more um, common, though they are all quite rare uh, than my son's disorder, but they all have uh, varying developmental trajectories. And we want to understand what is the natural history, meaning what do these um, individuals, how do they develop over time without any intervention or, or uh, knowing that they're past so that when we do clinical trials, when we develop either um, pharma pharmacological interventions like drugs or uh, therapies or anything else, uh, other environmental factors, we need to know whether there's a change. And we can't do that if we don't know what normal is. And um, I think we we don't know um, what we don't know until we really map it out. Um, so I'm part of this group that's uh, looking at these trajectories over time. And I'm specifically interested in looking at how language is developing in um, many of these uh, in many of these disorders, especially uh, Phelan McDermott syndrome, um, this Shank 3 gene, uh, which is highly associated with uh, limited expressive speech. Um, so yeah. very exciting. Uh, I'm super excited by this strong relationship with phenotype. And we were just discussing in a previous episode with Winston Yan about uh, the importance of developing outcome measures uh, for uh, rare diseases. And uh, 
how it is crucial to have a good reference so how people are doing before treatment because as uh, the number of patients is so limited and every specific case is quite uh, alone because they are all different uh, what are the commonalities what can we really track that in different neurodevelopmental diseases is always there and we can build reliable work that understands how can we make better performance at some specific task by analyzing some previous pattern of activity of a child, let's say, before an intervention. So maybe can you, Christy, elaborate a bit on this and what you're doing and what are your dreams in this field? Yeah, I think outcome measures are really important. And I think this is especially true for individuals who live at kind of the, the tails of the distribution, um, typically like the normal distribution where we say, okay, here's, here's how a child develops. We know about when they start walking. We know about when they start talking. And there's this little, you know, there's a little standard deviation, you know, within, you know, 10 months to 15 months is the average age of, of taking your first steps. And, and it progresses in this way from there. And we just don't know the answers. We don't know this data for these different populations. And so we don't know what's normal. And therefore, we don't know when we've made a change. Um, and so much of the research is still focused on saying, are they delayed or not? So, so many, many papers are looking at diagnosis and saying, okay, when you come into a neurologist's office or, or even just your general doctor's office, and you see, oh, your child is 20 months old and they haven't started walking. Oh, that's a flag. That's a flag that something is going, quote unquote, wrong or they're, they're behind. Let's look into this further. And that's a yeah, strong simplification. Yeah, Yeah, that's very important. OK, I, I, I do not want to undermine how critical this research is and how important getting a diagnosis is. But then I've always asked, what's next? Right. So much kind of falls off after that, where it's like, OK, we've we figured out that they're delayed. Now what? And uh, for some populations in some places, we do have, you know, a lot more information. But for a lot of these rare disorders, we don't. We don't know what's next. And for parents and families, as I can attest to, it, it's agonizing and it gets really disheartening and frustrating to all you ever hear is that your child is delayed. Like they're not progressing the way that they should be as a neurotypical child. And let me tell you, I get it. <laughs> like, I know, I know yeah, I've got it. I've figured it out. Okay, yeah, what's next? Yeah. That's right, what's next? We need to know what's next. And so much of why we don't know what's next is that we don't have measures that are sensitive enough and subtle enough to capture the ways that these individuals are progressing over time. So if, if, if you look at a, a typically developing child, um, you know, one who's kind of in this, this normal range and they start taking their first steps at 12 months and then the, by 13 months they're like running across the room and by 14 months they're, you know, going even faster and then they're running and skipping and jumping. And we have like measures and assessments that look at that. But what if you're taking your first step, say, I pick an age, 30 months or something, but then you take five steps six months later. And by two years later, you can walk across the room. And by five years later, you can make it down the block. Those are incredible progressions. Yeah. But we don't have measures that really, I mean, I'm using, I'm using walking as kind of a yeah, trite kind of example. Yeah, like this one's easy to understand, but there are so many. Um, and, and, and we can go into speech and language. So, right. so for my son, he is non-speaking, meaning he has, he has absent speech. He has no spoken words at all. Yet he communicates 
incredibly richly. And he does so through many different modalities, one of which is vocalization. So he makes these sounds like, hmm, ah, 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 and they mean something. And critically, he didn't always make those sounds. When he was younger, he didn't make sounds outside of crying pretty much at all for years. It's a big progress, I guess. It's a big deal. That's right. He went from making very, like, just kind of yelling or crying sounds to, like, ma 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 Right? Each, each one of those three things that I just said have like kind of yeah. different meanings. And, and he start to understand people's meanings. That's right. Yeah. And yes, we don't have any words. And so if you're looking at an assessment modality, like if you're looking at a language assessment, he is stuck between the question that says, when did your child start babbling? To when did they say their first word? So his progress would go just undetected. It's just case. zero, right? It's just it's crazy because there is progress. That's right. We're stuck between questions three and questions four for like 10 years. And that's not where he is. He's progressing. He's changing. He's developing incredibly powerful and important ways. And it doesn't show up on any assessment. And it seems silly to like focus on assessments because we all know that they're like reductionist and kind of, you know, flawed by taking a very sure. dynamic, complex process and boiling it down into a few questions. But it is a useful metric and we don't have sufficient metrics for this population to see their progress, to know whether things are working, to really study them, to get funding for it. We don't even have the vocabulary to talk about these individuals in a, a nuanced way. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, um, do you know about other children with the same gene mutation as your child uh, who develop uh, vocalization in a similar or different way? Or do you have some information about these and uh, related genes which may play similar roles in the biology but uh, uh, result in different uh, vocalization or uh, other uh, outcome measures that would result in different scales, let's say, of this uh, um, understanding of how a child is doing, but at the same time, uh, uh, you think the progress is quite different because uh, we can't really track the details. Yeah, so I'll, I'll try to answer those in parts. Um, the first question was, do I know of other individuals with my son's uh, dis disorder or deletion uh, that have similar vocalizations? And the answer is yes. Um, it's a very small community. When he was diagnosed, there were only seven known individuals worldwide. And now it's in the double digits. I don't know actually where in the double digits, like maybe 40s, 50s um, in the world. Uh, and that's not known because we don't have a good tracking mechanism for this. Like it, it, it matters whether the doctors and the patients have submitted it to certain portals um, and have, have uh, documented it well. Um, and the most that I know is actually through a Facebook group about this. Kind of crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. But that's how it works. And I think, I think it's really important to consider how all of our science and our technology are impacting humans, right? The way that science and technology affects humans as as is as important as the science and technology itself. And if we're not thinking about how it's reaching people, then we're not done. And it doesn't mean it's not important. You know, there's all levels of science from very basic bench science and you know, the stuff that I did like before my son was born that didn't really affect people at all. Uh, it affected like the insides of neutron stars. At some point, maybe. You know. I don't know. It was it was a cool story, but really, I nobody nobody's lives were changed by <laughs> by me doing that research. Um, to the stuff that I do now, that that really 
I want people to be the focus of it. I want them to be the inspiration. I want to be asking the questions that families and individuals are asking and trying to address those problems, which are hard. Like they're society-based problems. They're, yeah. they're messier, <laughs> so much messier than basic science. Sorry, going back to your question, the Facebook group, um, almost all the individuals uh, have absent speech, meaning no spoken words. Um, many of them use vocalizations in a similar manner to my son. That's now. How, how close they are, like how similar they are, it hasn't been studied. That's actually but was- you're studying something very close. So maybe it's the right moment to ask you to tell us all the details about your immense project, Komala. We study deeply characterizes vocalization by nonverbal individuals indeed to enhance communication. And that's one of Christie's goals, not only to understand, but only to also to help, right? So can you explain maybe in a bit of detail how and who are nonverbal individuals? How many of them there are in the USA? Uh, what are their needs? How they express themselves with vocalizations? Uh, and yeah, some types of these vocalizations. Yeah, so again, a lot of That's questions question. there. A lot of questions. <laughs> uh, so um, let's start with, with what nonverbal means. And this is an important phrase because um, there's a lot of identity um, baked into how we use these words. And uh, I um, have sometimes used the word nonverbal. That's a, a very common term to refer to uh, individuals without spoken speech. However, the word verbal means any kind of word. So it can actually refer to like writing and communication through uh, assisted technology, um, like augmentative and um, alternative communication devices, AAC devices. It can refer to kind of pictures gets complicated. Regardless, verbal has a bigger meaning than just spoken words. So a lot of people in the community refer to preferred non-speaking or minimally speaking. Um, however, other people have used low verbal or pre-verbal or limited functional speech or um, it's complicated. Um, and I always first ask the individual or the family, what um, and or the family, um, what phrase they prefer. Yeah, wording is important. That's right. And if they have an identity um, or an association with that phrase, then I use that phrase. Um, and if they don't, then I often um, use kind of a, a series of phrases interchangeably that are common in this field. So minimally verbal with respect to expressive speech, um, or nonverbal, or non-speaking, or minimally speaking. Um, so. The way that I define it here are individuals who have few spoken words um, with their mouth. And I think it's important to acknowledge again that they're using many communication modalities. So they're using AAC devices, they're often using picture cards, they're often using sign language or modified sign language, they're using gestures and environmental cues, and they're also using vocalizations. And all of those are important and valid, and they're not in my count of like, you know, a, a few spoken words because we don't know what the characterization of this population really is. So we don't know how, how well individuals who maybe have three spoken words and um, severe or profound neurodevelopmental disorders, I, we don't know how they're using their AAC device or sign language or gestures in a, in a rich way. You just have to try and see. That's right, we need the data um, to answer that question. And so I'm not excluding uh, or saying, oh, if you have 50 words on your AAC device, then uh, that means you're no longer part of my research study or something because you have too many expressive words. No, I, I really want to understand because yeah. 50 is not hundreds or thousands, it's still 50. And uh, I want to know how this language and this communication of yours is progressing. Okay, so um, 
again, we're referring to minimally verbal or minimally speaking with respect to expressive speech uh, produced by the mouth. And um, I am interested in vocalizations, like we talked about, which are used in you and I uh, all the time. Yeah, in not you know in verbal speech that are used like yeah ah oh right. These are all nonverbal vocalizations that. And it's pretty important for us to communicate, I guess. That's right. Like, uh, oh, <laughs> like, like they just have a lot of different meaning, and they're usually well understood. But nonverbal vocalizations in uh, the population that I study, which I refer to as MV star, so that's like a, a kind of homage to this minimally verbal, um, this really common term that's in the phrase called minimally verbal. Uh, but I. I want to get away from the idea that, that minimally verbal is offensive to many individuals and, and they prefer a different term, which I, I really respect. Um, so MV star, this asterisk, means that you know there's just a lot more to learn about sure. this group. Um, so the, in the MV star community, um, these nonverbal vocalizations can have meaning, but we don't know how consistent they are. Um, so I, to getting back to your question about my son's disorder, I hear vocalizations in this group. I hear ma 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 ba 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 ba. I hear these babbles. I hear yells and uh, squeals of delight and a lot of other sounds that are hard to describe with our uh, you know typical English descriptors. Um, and we're studying them. And in Kamala, we uh, deeply characterized eight different individuals. We actually recruited more, but we got enough data to really look across different types of vocalizations, like frustrated vocalizations and delighted vocalizations and, and vocalizations that might be associated with a request, like ma is you know maybe exactly what you say and I know what you mean, you're asking for something. Sure. And that's very different than ah, right? Like a very, frustrated sound and I'm saying those in a way that makes sense to you but maybe my frustrated sound is and you might not associate that with a frustrated sound because it's not the same frustrated yeah, sound you learn by experience because you're her mom that's right yeah, that's right have troubles understanding or just guessing that's right I have the context of all of these things and so importantly in Kamala we use the families we need the families to tell us what's going on. So if the individual themselves could tell us, I'm frustrated right now, or I'm happy right now, <laughs> then, then we use that, that's our ground truth. But in all of the individuals that we studied, they were sure. not able to do that. And so we used the next best thing that we had, which was families who often said, I know what that means. Like, I know exactly. that he's requesting a banana right now, or to go outside, or she's unhappy. Um, and so we had them label in real time, in the world, in the real world, in their homes, at the park, wherever they were, um, that sound is frustrated. That sound is delight, like just by tapping a button on an app. And at the same time, we were recording these sounds from the individuals. And so we could capture, we could say, okay, like this lines up with this, this label that they gave it of frustrated or this label of delighted. And then we could create an entire repository, an entire database of what these sounds are. And now we can start to ask the science questions. Yeah, maybe can you uh, give us some numbers of uh, how many recordings per individual did you get? Yeah, it's a great question. We had widely varying numbers depending on how often they recorded. We, we, let, we did this all during the pandemic um, and we let families decide. But we had everything from a few hundred um, from I think our lowest individual had a few hundred vocalizations that were recorded and labeled uh, to a few thousand. We had over 7,000 labeled vocalizations across these eight different individuals. And we had, we had many more um, that, that didn't make it into the final database um, that we're still, still looking into. Yeah, it's super cool. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in this field as more and more data get collected. And yeah, maybe we can stay technical for a few minutes. So can you spend a few words on the machine learning that is enabling all this? 
and yeah, from, ranging from a basic concepts uh, to something more advanced that you think is worth knowing uh, and that the field is really benefiting from and it's innovative in its value? Yeah, so I think a lot of the machine learning was a challenge because there isn't any precedent for this population. So we actually had to build our own data set, which required building our own methodology to get the data, to label it. It's never been labeled or acquired in this way. Um, and then we could start to build models um, that were trying to separate or classify the different vocalization types. So within one individual, they had frustrated vocalizations and delighted vocalizations and request vocalizations and something we called self-talk, which is kind of a self-soothing sound often associated with being happy or content and kind of relaxed. Um, and, you know, uh, we had another sound that was called dysregulated, which is like when you're sort of globally just overstimulated or understimulated, the way I describe it is often when you've, you've been sitting and watching Netflix for a little too long, where it's like, you know you're not feeling great and you need to get off the couch and you need somebody to come and turn off that TV because you need to, to get up and moving, uh, uh, but you don't really know necessarily even how to do it yourself or you can't like pinpoint the exact feeling that you're feeling. Um, That's that, super interesting. I liked its metaphor. Yeah, dysregulated is a feeling that individuals in these communities, every family seemed to uh, know what we meant when we said dysregulated. They might use a different word for it, uh, but when we described what we meant by dysregulated, they, they knew. And, and many of the individuals, though not all had a vocalization that was associated with specifically with being dysregulated, um, which is different than like frustrated, which might be like, I'm frustrated because I can't do this specific thing. Like I can't go outside or you're not giving me the thing that I want or I have to do this therapy. Um, anyhow, so we have these different states and within individuals, um, uh, largely in part by my colleague, Jaya Narain, who I, I really want to emphasize, this was a joint collaboration with Jaya, who was a PhD student at the Media Lab when I was there. Um, and we really built this from the ground up. Um, the great thing about the Media Lab is that we can build projects from the ground up. We, um, it wasn't motivated out of some larger project that was going on. It was something that you know we kind of came up with and piloted and kept working at it until it was working. Um, and so Jaya's thesis really has a lot of the depth of the different machine learning algorithms that she created. And a lot of them are not uh, the most complicated uh, machine learning options available because we have very small numbers of data. And we have to train and test them, you know, using cross-fold validation and uh, within each person. Um, there's not a different data set. We tried some different data sets that we could train it on and test it on ours and they didn't perform very well. Because um, everything's based around verbal speech, right? There's yeah. a lot of speech recognition technology that's happening, but it doesn't translate to this population. It's based on words. So we have to develop the technology to create um, like the infrastructure to be able to classify these different vocalizations that aren't based on words. Um, but all of them were able to classify, all of the algorithms that were developed were able to classify the different vocalizations within a person above chance, significantly above chance for, for most individuals. Um, and yeah, that sounds like pioneering word. And yeah, such a big achievement. I mean, uh, so this is uh, like a general model that then gets applied, if I understand well, to data sets specific for the person. The different people are not aggregated into a collective data set, yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's the case it is right now. We hope that in the future we can like generalize across individuals, but right now we have individuals who ranged in age from six to twenty-three, uh, both both binary genders uh, and a variety of different uh, diagnoses. And so even just on the acoustic level, if you're comparing an eighteen-year-old male to a six-year-old female, like a lot of the um, acoustic features that you might be using to build your feature sets are, are not yeah, going you, to translate well. That's right. It's very hard to normalize without uh, without more data. So we're hoping as we can build more data and, and increase these data sets um, that we'll be able to say, oh, like, look, we're, we're seeing similar patterns. Learning. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Across these individuals. And we can maybe build mod classification models with, with fewer uh, data points. Yeah, but right good. now, it's, it's really just like we had to show that it was possible. Uh, we had to build it uh, from the ground up and, and figure out a lot of kinks like how do you even collect real world data uh, from this population how do you how do you get a microphone to stay on an individual um, that took us a few months of, of piloting new techniques yeah that's already so interesting and uh, I want to ask more details on this like I know you built an app to do everything and uh, yeah can you tell how the app worked and how you had the idea what was the engagement level of the parents how can you make these things really user friendly because if you have to engage such a specific population that has such specific needs i think you really need something that is easy to use and that can collect the data that you really need in a highly optimized way i think yeah we were really lucky to be at the media lab because you have access to people who uh, are just brilliant with uis and uh, developing something that's like real world ready. Um, so we were able to work with a software developer that was a friend of mine, uh, Craig Ferguson, to help make many iterations of the app, not just one, not just one that had a lot of bugs, uh, but beautiful uh, apps that allowed you to first label in real time. So the individuals were wearing uh, wearable microphones for the first iteration of this, and the parents were uh, labeling and say, oh, that's a frustrated vocalization. That's a delighted vocalization. But you have to remember, even, even these labels don't come perfectly because you're going to communicate something. And then there's a delay when I need to pull out the app out of my pocket and then push the right button and you know tell you when it starts and when it stops and when it maybe changes to a different thing. And we had to count for all of that in how we were uh, segmenting these maybe hour-long recordings or, or even longer uh, recordings into the two-second frustrated vocalization. Um, so, so the the original apps were um, were beautiful, but relatively simple in their design. Like you just need to push this button, start and stop. And um, and then we made a, another generation of the app that actually does the recording on it. So one of the things we found that was a struggle for individuals was like just getting the recorder on the individual, which we used lapel magnets for, and all sorts of like, sometimes they were held near the individual just so that we could get the data um, to start. Um, and we found that we could record directly on the app and you could store it. And the parents and families and, and individuals had uh, direct access to listening to the vocalizations. They could delete it if, for example, it didn't capture the vocalization or if there was sensitive information that they didn't want to share with us. They really owned the data and could decide when they were ready to share. And then it got uploaded to our servers. And then we can get it from our servers to create the models and classification. And that allows us to do the, the quote unquote translation. It's not translation. It's real time classification. And we're only able to classify the things that have been labeled because that's how machine learning works. Um, but it's easiest for a lot of people to think about it like a, like a, a translation yeah, event. That's the first step, I guess, towards a dream of understanding every communication in a way that can really put people outside of this disease in the condition to understand better these people 
and maybe there are other means uh, or other possible alternative uh, work that is being done there that I'm not super aware of. So maybe you can spend a few words about uh, what's happening in the field and what do you envision in the next like 10 years for now um, for understanding really people who communicate in a different way than most people do. Yeah, I think my dream is really shared understanding. Um, I want to make sure that individuals who are communicating, again, they're communicating richly and robustly, expressively, are being understood and being responded to in a way that acknowledges their communication. And I think not only will we learn about their communication in this process, but they will be empowered to communicate more and more fully. And I, I truly believe, I mean, I think it's pretty well established that language is co-constructed and that, um, you know, we, we need that back and forth. We need that exchange to develop communication um, as as a species, right, as, as humans. Um, that's from like, I'd say the, the human side of it, which I think, again, is very important. You can't have the technology without understanding its influence in society. Um, that said, I think understanding the development of language of humans from this kind of basic science perspective, this mechanistic, like what is the genetic underpinning? What are the mechanistic understanding of how we develop language? We've tried to do this for decades with infants and with other animals, right? With other species of individuals and other species of animals. But this um, population has never really been explored for their potential to show us how we're developing language over time, right? In, in infant um, language studies, which are prolific, right? They're, they're in all sorts of departments all across the world. We look at how language develops and you have a couple month window. Right? You have you have weeks, so right? Short. They change every single day, right? And they're babbling, and then two months later, they're they're saying um, multisyllabic, like um, uh, repetitive babbles, and then they're doing variegated babbles, and then they're doing words, and then that. My daughter, I have a, another child as well, and she just learns words. It's amazing. She just she just comes up with stuff. She wakes up and she knows things that I didn't teach her, and it's incredibly hard to study that. But here we have an opportunity to explore how language is being um, constructed and learned and shared over the course of decades, right? If you're, if you're learning zero words to one word in 10 years, we have an incredible microscope, an expansion microscopy of human language development that is untapped. Yeah, I think you're a great communicator. I never thought this about yeah, in this way, but that's super inspiring. And yeah, the same way why we choose fish that live shorter or longer to study aging, for instance. And yeah, uh, without changing topic too much, I, I was inspired by what you were saying to ask you the next question that would be, yeah, now let's imagine that we can really understand people with minimal uh, verbal com capabilities. So we can have instruments that can help people out there to understand their rich communication, even if it's not uh, the same as ours. Now, how can we make sure that the way we communicate to them is uh, enabling them to understand the most that they can and to make the most of the information and yeah, to, to make communication like bi-directional, not only we understanding people who neurodevelopmental uh, problems or, but also un them understanding what the external world is saying to them better than we know. And first of all, understanding how much they are already understanding because probably they are, but we don't know because we don't have a studies that tell this. 
Yeah, you've touched on a couple of very important points. One, expressive and receptive communication are completely different. Uh, I mean, maybe not completely different, but they are different processes and they develop in different ways, right? If you're talking to uh, a young infant or a toddler, even if they only have a handful of words, they often know exactly what you're telling them and the stories that you're reading. And that is true too in this population where receptive language almost always emerges before any sort of measurable expressive language. Again, going back to how we kind of defined expressive language in a very nuanced way um, for this population, that it means different things and it's a total communication approach. Um, so receptive and expressive is, is very different. But to your point, communication is always bi-directional, right? I communicate with you, you receive my communication and communicate back, right? Sometimes, I hope. <laughs> I hope. I hope we try. I guess. I guess in the internet world, in the Twitter sphere, it doesn't seem bi-directional, but so. <laughs> there's a lot of echo chamber yelling. Yeah. Um, but I think that is the goal for this: is that yes, uh, I'm expressing something to you. You're you're acknowledging my communication in return. Um, saying, oh, yeah, oh, wow, you, you seem really excited about this, or you seem really frustrated, like, what can I do to help? Or let's try this other thing. Um, much more so than a one-way street of like, oh, now you can understand your grandchild, or now the person at the grocery store can understand this, this individual. Um, that's important, but that's not the end of the game. It has to go both ways. That's how society functions. That's how communication works. Yeah, and we also instinctively like understand what people are meaning, not just by words, but most importantly, by how people are saying something. So how can we extend these also to minimally verbal people? Yeah, that's right. And we don't have a lot of things that are optimized for um, understanding it. So going back to some of the technical things, right? We want to understand like what are the acoustic properties that go along with uh, certain emotional states and certain communicative states. Um, we can really explore this and say, so, so for example, we ran a study that had naive listeners, people who had, had no idea that these were nonverbal or minimally verbal communicators, uh, minimally speaking, non-speaking uh, communicators, and they didn't know that there were different states or different like communication communicative expressions happening so they didn't know that there was like a frustrated sound and a delighted sound and a dysregulated sound and we had them listen to almost 400 vocalizations that they had to rate on measures of emotion something called like arousal which is like your energy or your activation um and valence which is like positive or negative is it a positive sound is it a negative sound and just like before when i was like ah right like you might know intuitively like that's a very high kind of energy or activating sound and it's yeah it's kind of negative right um but is that true without context without looking at my facial expression and is it true for these individuals who again don't have the the typical verbal uh surroundings but typical verbal speech around these sounds and what we found is that we we got we got um over 100 people to rate these 400, almost 400 vocalizations on, actually, I think it was 365 at the end, um, on both arousal and valence. So we had like almost 80,000 ratings. And consistently, frustrated sounds were perceived. Again, they didn't know that there were different types of sounds and they didn't know they were from non-speaking um, non individuals. They were perceived as higher in, in this kind of energy arousal and 
lower in yeah. valence, like a more negative sound. And likewise, kind of request and self-talk, these other maybe more neutral sounds um, were on the other side of the rating scale. They were more neutrally rated in terms of their arousal and valence. So there's something that we're hearing um, that's either being almost universally expressed. I don't want to say universal. I'm not saying, uni I'm not saying universal. That's, that's like a... <laughs> because nothing is universal, but sort of um, consistently expressed and understood by another individual, but then maybe also co-constructed, right? Yeah. If I make a sound that you perceive as negative and highly activating, highly energetic, you respond in that way, and I'm gonna make that sound again. And this is happening even in this population that maybe isn't expressing uh, their, their speech and language in the way that um, we have for the, the rest of society that we've sort of been raised in, like, um, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing, I think. Maybe now we can do some feedback and go back to Christy's past. So I know Christy has been doing lots of work also in, uh, you know, our related fields uh, for uh, children with minimally verbal capabilities. So uh, maybe I will start by quoting something you wrote on your very old website, I think. So the world needs a radical new approach to cognitive augmentation and an innovative answer to cognitive disabilities. I wonder if you can extend a bit on this and explain what cognitive neurotechnology is and why it is important. What are the major developments in this side of the same field? When I wrote that, I, I was really looking for technology that would help an individual learn and grow. And I, I have to admit that when I, when I started, I was looking at how um, I could help an individual learn and grow in a way that I thought was necessary for development because that's what I knew. Like, that's what the books say, that's what the papers say, that's what the researchers say, this is how you have to develop. And what I have learned is that the individuals themselves are teaching and telling us a lot and that we need to take a step back and look at what that information is already telling us. Uh, that it's not just about helping them, uh, you know, learn faster or, or, or grow in the way that we think they should be growing, you know, but rather saying, what are you already doing and how can we help you get to the next step that you want to get to? Um, and that sort of person-centric approach, I, I didn't necessarily have fully developed when I, when I, when I started this. So I think... Cognitive neurotechnology is about um, developing technology that enhances one's livelihood through development and understanding, meaning helping them grow and develop in the best way that they can and in the ways that they want to, right? It's often frustrating to not be able to do something. I can't make a dunk a basketball, right? And that, that's frustrating. Right? Um, but also enhancing our own understanding of what they're already doing in their life and um, how that's going to develop over time. You know, this kind of what ne what's next question, this developmental trajectory question, um, so that we can improve each measure, each step of the way. Um, I, used to think, I used to think technology was the answer to everything, and I think it's really important, but I think the limiting factor for so many things is logistics. And we can't dismiss the, the whole picture. 
when we're creating, when we're, we're studying neuroscience and we're studying engineering and we're, we're, we're exploring the intersection of that and science and technology, we have to look at how it's being used and um, like what science we can glean, what information we can learn from what's already being shared um, by the individual. I don't know if that was a good answer. Yeah, I, I believe that uh, indeed uh, well-being is a highly individualized concept. We can generalize too much. And you've been doing some very inspiring work also on this, I think now a long time ago. So maybe continuing on this wave, I may ask uh, about your Arduino-based toys that respond to specific individualized needs. So I, I'd be very happy if you could explain a bit in detail what this entails and what observations led you to this idea, which is very tailored to your son's needs and uh, how you think we can pair this kind of interactive activities that are yeah, meant to enhance a child's skill with objective and quantitative performance metrics. So we can also do what we were just discussing before, so tracking and have outcome measures and see how the child is doing uh, to maximize herself or himself for learning uh, or well-being, whatever that means for the individualized patient. Yeah, so one of the other projects that I think you're referring to that I built uh, was called Spring. Uh, this is the smart platform for research intervention and neurodevelopmental growth, uh, sort of a torturous acronym. Um, but it was a, um, a wooden device that was made to look like a toy, and it, it was embedded with all sorts of sensors that allowed us to take quantitative data. So every time you approached it and every time you tried to put it, one of the first uh, devices that I built looked like a sheep sorter. So every time you tried to put a shape in, we would could track it, and how long did it take you, and what sort of prompts did you use? Did you Were you just playing around? Were you matching something? Were you matching something complicated like like a yield sign is a triangle or a bunch of gumballs that's a, that's a circle um, and and how are then you developing over time right so if you started with just matching a, a black triangle on a white background and then you progressed to the yield sign and then you progressed to pyramids and other you know more complicated shapes how long did that take could we track it over time and most importantly um, like that's that's one part of the puzzle the other part is Shape sorting is not that much fun if it's a lot of work for you. And how do motivation we? Motivation is important. Right, motivation is critical. Motivation is key. It's powerful. It's it's powerful for you and me, but it's also in an and and it's also powerful for these individuals. And so if if I'm not motivating this activity in a way that is engaging to you, I'm not going to see the optimal expression of skill. And this is really important. I think a lot of developmental uh, assessments and technology is based on trying to normalize or standardize. Everybody gets the same thing. But in this population, I want to see the best you possibly have to offer. That's why we do things in the real world. We do them in the absolute best scenario where you can come up with, uh, that, that you can come up with to um, show me what skills you have. And so if you love lights that race around in circles in beautiful rainbow displays, we can have this device provide feedback in the form of lights that race around in beautiful. But maybe for you know your friend Bobby over here, lights are very distracting and uh, or, or frustrating. And what he really loves are trains. And more specifically, he loves steam engines from the 18th century, where the the clouds billow out of the the steam stack. Is it called a steam stack? I don't know. <laughs> the stack. Uh, and and so we can embed that so that every time you put in a, a triangle, we we provide that feedback of of a train. Now I wish I could make the whole thing about trains and and really morph. <laughs> 
it's all said. But it's this balance of finding how to standardize something across all individuals. So we're, the, we're doing something so that we can study it and we can kind of take similar styles of data, but doing it so that it's personalized as much as possible. Scaling versus personalization. That's right. And they they got to go hand in hand. It's a, it's a balancing walk. I, I was recently at a, a, a high ropes course, and there was this one... Um, <laughs> one obstacle where it had a log on each side and nothing in the middle. And I mean, I was, you're roped in, you're oh, like God. 30 feet in the air, but you have to like walk along each log, one foot along each log, and they're moving and shifting as you go. And that's pretty much how this is. You have to balance the personalization and the standardization. It's also how it is to be a multidisciplinary scientist. Like I have to keep one foot in, in whatever fields I'm combining, whether it's engineering or computer science, or I really don't do much physics anymore, but like neuroscience or, or psychology and development or medicine, right? Now I'm here surrounded by biologists and it's, it's looking at like, how do we how do we use these things? The reason I gave this talk to your group was how, how do we do these things and use them in trials where you need to personalize? You need to look at the optimal expression of skill but you need to do it in some way that you can replicate it again six months later, either with the same person or with somebody else a year down the road. And um, yeah, it's definitely not a solved problem. I, spring was my, my first attempt at that. Um, you know, it was, it was very exciting. We got some really great results on its ability to sort of maintain engagement and potentially even accelerate some of the skill development because you're just practicing more you're sort of motivated more to practice um, one of the challenges there is that these were all prototypes that i was building in my lab uh, by myself and some some undergraduates in the machine shop um, i love building right this is again you get to you get to do all the different disciplines um, and uh, i really needed to commercialize it if we were taking it further it needed to be something that was super robust more ro like if, if you're working 10 minutes to put in a single shape and one of my sensors doesn't fire after that you know like the, the whole thing's lost right like yeah. that data are the, is gone um and um yeah i had i had other questions that i really wanted to ask but i it it showed us so much of how personalized the response had to be. It ended up prompting an fMRI study that is still ongoing. It was on hold from uh, COVID where we are personalizing the stimuli in the fMRI uh, to look at um, uh, language and reward network activation when you're kind of hearing stories about things that you really love that are, again, it's not just trains, it's steam engines from the 18th century, right? That it's not specific. specific, it's very specific, it's highly personalized. And I think we have to look at that as the new era of science for um, for everybody. Yeah, not I really just like this idea. And this leads to my final very open question, I guess. So my final very open question is, uh, if you had the unlimited, unlimited time and resources, what would you do to lead you to your dream in 30 years from now on in the I don't know. It's not a field, but it's uh, many fields you're working on. Yeah, that's a very open question. It is a very open question. So, so my dream is to not uh, be defined by a single discipline, but by a singular population. I think I wrote that in that original, original um, application. Um, I want to, if you just gave me a ton of money, I would develop a lab that brought in individuals from all different backgrounds that was working towards advancing the population of rare neurodevelopmental disorders as 
fast as possible. So we would be devel developing devices like this, wearable sensors. We didn't even get to the wearable sensors questions and the other, other research that I've done there. Uh, wearable sensors, uh, physical devices like spring and other things that are necessary for capturing data and advancing um, you know, learning and cognition, as well as um, technology that's in homes that can enhance communication, that can enhance well-being, that can enhance, you know, Kamala looks at language and it looks at communication, but there's also things like um, access to resources and doctor's appointments and getting, building a community. I think, I think we could tackle so many of these things at the same time and they help each other. We get data, you know, the data that we got from Kamala, we needed to build the machine learning models but we had to develop new types of machine learning models and new methodology. Again, especially my, my colleague Jaya uh, poured herself into this to deal with the data. They go hand in hand. We had to develop you know, the, the way to collect the data and the models. Um, and so we published things in the human and computer interaction conferences and we published things in the machine learning conferences. And I hope that we can also publish things in um, you know, medical journals that are saying like, hey, look at these outcome measures over time and look at how they affect, they are affected by different interventions. And um, yeah, I would try to tackle, <laughs> I wouldn't try to tackle it all because you can't do everything. But I think, I think there's so much for these, these populations, not just like my son's disorder is quite specific and quite small, but there are a couple million people in the United States who fall into these buckets where they That's are, a lot. It's, it's a lot. Uh, it's, it's, you know, rare as one, right? The, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, like, like there are the, the rare disease research um, network says, okay, I think each disorder is quite rare, but in the aggregate, they are encountering a lot of the same problems. And so a lot of the same solutions that work for one can maybe work for another. And I think that's true here. We can focus on rare, monogenic, or highly, um, highly pronounced neurodevelopmental disorders, develop for them. And I, I think a lot of the things that we do would scale to other research. So if you have a few million dollars lying around, I would happily take it and go build my lab. That's what I want to do. <laughs> Luckily, I don't, but I wish I had. And well, I'm sure that we've your great communication capabilities. <laughs> you, you won't have all the time uh, that you want, may want, but you have many people that will get inspired by your work and your research. And yeah, so I encourage you to do many more of these outreach things because I'm sure that you can really bring many more people to this very new field, I guess. I mean, it's still not a field. It's like a combination of fields. And at least in Europe, I had never heard uh, talking about this, even if there's something for sure. So I think that this world has lots of to learn from great communicators to inspire young people to study these disciplines and get closer and do the most of it. So yeah, I'm super thankful for taking some of your time to do this podcast and I just uh, say thanks. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You've just listened to A Biotech Futurist, a podcast by Luca Fusarbassini. This is the first series and a new episode is out every Monday. Please consider subscribing and rating the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform. And if you liked this episode, consider sharing it with your friends, as the growth of new podcasts relies on word of mouth. If you have any suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out to me on Instagram or Gmail at the biotechfuturistpodcast at gmail.com. 
You can find the full AI-generated transcript of this episode on my website, lukafuzarabassin.com. I'll also post the links to the main papers referenced in this episode, which you can find here in the description too. Thanks for listening to A Biotech Futurist. I am looking forward to talking with you in a week.